Yes. All right. Let's go ahead and dive in. Um, Book of Romans, Paul, chapter 11, discusses something, discusses two classes of people. And he says, there is kindness and severity in God. And this is how God acts towards different people. To those who don't believe, there is severity. To those who love the Lord Jesus, there is plenty of kindness. As we, we have finished chapter 2 in Second Peter, we're moving into chapter 3. And Peter is going to sort of stop talking in such a negative, derogatory sense where he's just attacking false teachers. He's not just out to sort of have the, the smearing of their character that he has before. He's going to start moving into more positive arguments for the return of Jesus Christ. And as we move through, what I think you'll see that stands out is that there are two parts to the return of Christ, not the dispensationalist sense. There are two parts to re the return of Christ. First, there is kindness and patience that God has towards those who love his appearing. And on the other hand, there is great severity for those who do not love the Lord Jesus and are unredeemed. Uh, beginning in verse 1 here of our se uh, Second Peter text for tonight, we're going to examine the beliefs and the mockeries of the false teachers. So diving into verses 1 through 7, I believe that has been handed out as one unit tonight. One whole unit for seven verses. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own <coughs> sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So this is the second letter that Peter is writing to this audience. And what he wants to remind them of is the predictions of the holy prophets and the apostles. What I want you to pick out from verse 1, this is going to be true for the rest of the chapter. And it's going to be critical that you pick this up. Who is he writing to? Specifically, what is his audience beginning in chapter 3? To you, the beloved. His, he is very, very clear that the people he is addressing now is not just the mixed assembly, but he's writing to the people who are real Christians. This will be very important <coughs> next week when we look at verse 9. Peter then is writing the second letter to a group of believers and reminding them of predictions from the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord Jesus through the apostles, which I would take to be the gospel. What is he? What are these pr uh, prophetic predictions and these commandments having to deal with? Back to the text, he is looking at the last days. So we're going to have to deal tonight with what are the last days. And then if you want to take it a little bit further, Peter just out and out says what he's talking about down in verse 10 and verse 11 when he refers to the day of the Lord. And so we're going to really have to work with grappling in this chapter with what is the day of the Lord, when are the latter days, and such questions. For our text here, though, we have scoffers who are saying, no, I mean, they're mocking this idea of the return of Jesus. Now, what is their rationale for mocking 
this concept of the parousia or the return of Christ? Well, it's, it's very simple. In geolog, uh, like in, in, what is it? Geological? Yeah. Yeah, geological. Geological terms, their argument, how many of you have heard the term uniformitarianism? That's what I'm getting at. Okay, uniformitarianism. The idea is, that's a long word. When I was in like sixth grade, I was like, I know one long word, and that was it. This is the idea that things are the way they are now, and they always have been, so they're going to continue to progress in a uniform fashion. Things have been this way, and they therefore will continue in that way. So what, is the, what are the false teachers saying here? Well, the world was created, and it's just been ever since. It just continues to be. So why would we expect the world to be destroyed? We, we don't have any evidence for that. And in a lot of sense, I mean, not to say that these people are agnostics, but I, I got a lot of an agnostic flair from this text because it's a very much like God wound up the world like a clock, and he set it and let it go. That is not the Christian message. God is imminent in human affairs. God has intervened in the past, and Peter is going to demonstrate how that is true. You know, God didn't just let it go. He has been imminent in human history. What is his example? Well, God created the world, right? We have the creation, and Peter says he formed it out of water and through water by the word of God. But that was world one, if you want to sort of denote these this is the first world that God created. Then what comes next? A cataclysmic event, the flood. And God destroys the world through water. If you view, like the Genesis narrative does and Peter's writings, as the flood as a recreation epic, you know, like back in chapter 2, what do you say? P Noah the eighth, indicating that it's the eighth day, the recreation day. If you view it as a recreation, then what comes after recreation? New heavens and new earth. So now we're into world two. Noah's re-given the Genesis mandate, go out, be fruitful and multiply, and we're back once again. And we have continued to live in this epic where God has said, I'm not going to destroy the world by water. I'm not going to deluge it, as Peter says. But that doesn't mean that he's not going to destroy it again. What is God's method of destruction going to be next time? Well, Peter is very clear here. He says that, but, but the same heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. God is going to destroy world number two, our world as we know it, by fire. And after that is going to come world number three, the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation. So I find, I find this text to be very, very straightforward. That is probably the fastest you've ever heard me exposit seven verses. Why? Because there just wasn't that much there. I mean, I don't want to make something that isn't there there. I, you know, nothing's more frustrating to me than it's like, yeah, we get it. This is what the text says. So I, I mean, we can go into the nitty gritty of the textual details. Like, is there a, a fair amount of debate over verse one where it's like, what is the first letter that Peter wrote? Is it first Peter or is it another lost letter? I don't know. And I don't think we're going to solve that and world hunger tonight. What does it mean that God formed the world this is what gets me, formed out of water and through water. I mean, maybe he's just making a literary parallel to the next verse, but we can get into that nitty-gritty if we want to. I just don't necessarily consider it to be the most edifying of discussion. Um, honestly, I find the, the biblical storyline, the big picture, the meta-narrative, if I can use that word, to be much more edifying. Like, that will cause me to delight in Jesus. 
see how the Old Testament connects to the New Testament and what is God's great plan for us being in Christ. That's what gets me excited. So I, I want to take a little bit broader look, more biblical theological look at tonight. And yet, I say all of that, I say this is an incredibly straightforward text, and yet I was so convicted by these verses, it was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. Peter's saying basically, hey, you already know this. I just want to bring your mind back to some of these Old Testament passages that you might have forgotten regarding the day of the Lord. That's what all he has to do for this church. But if you want the truth of the matter from me, I don't feel like I just need a reminder on the Old Testament passages that Peter's referring to. He's like, oh, yeah, 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 the predictions of the prophets. And I'm like, yeah, the predictions of the prophets. I definitely know exactly what he's talking about. And so this is an absolutely massive theme from the Old Testament into the New Testament is this the day of the Lord, the day of Christ, the latter days. And it is not something that I feel I have a perfect grasp on yet. And when I come to teach, I don't necessarily feel like I have a perfect grasp on things, but I, I want to feel like, oh yes, I, I may not know everything, but okay, I, I feel like I, I at least got this topic. And I've had past confusion on this topic where, you know, I'm going through a little testament. I'm like, okay, it says the day of the Lord here, but it's referring to one small country. And now we're talking about the cataclysmic world ending day of the Lord. What is happening in this Old Testament text? I've had a lot of past confusion. I've gained a lot of clarity in these past years. And yet when I came to this text, um, honestly, I think it was on the way to your house where I, I was feeling this Wednesday night. I, I was almost breaking down in tears over this passage for two reasons. Number one, because I started to get a glimpse of the beauty, the, oh, the exalted beauty of Jesus when it's truly connecting the storyline of the Old Testament and seeing, wow, Messiah has come in his radiant glory. Whoa. I almost also cried because I was angry with myself. I was angry with myself because it's like, this is the most beautiful thing that I could ever possibly see, and yet I'm too, uh, well, I mean, I'm not educated enough, I, and honestly, you're probably too lazy, because you're, you know, I'm like, if only I had just forgotten Instagram and everything, and I just spent all my time trying to see how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament, and not wasted time, how much more beauty could I grasp of Christ? So I was frustrated with myself for not being more inundated with this, and yet I'm also frustrated with the American church. Because when we think of eschatology, what do we think of? We're so focused on uh, seven years of tribulation, and don't forget the scorpions, which are actually Apache helicopters. John didn't know how to describe it, so he described the scorpion. You know, it's like, oh my goodness, we're missing the point. If we're talking about the rapture and specific chronology and you know, debating over the nuances of a thousand years and what that kingdom looks like, we have missed as a church the greatest proofs that Jesus is Messiah. We have absolutely thrown them away because we've relegated all of our eschatology to tomorrow and the future. But when you go through the biblical text, the Old Testament especially, and then you step into Matthew and Matthew explodes on the scene, it's like, whoa, Jesus is here. Messiah has come. He is doing these things. And it's like, whoa, we just set aside all of the proofs we could have had because we didn't want to see 
Jesus' fulfillment of all these prophecies because we had our own theological agenda. And Matthew highlights such subtle Old Testament fulfillments. Like you walk through the Gospel of Matthew queer, like very closely and you'll see that almost every story, every word is relating back to some Old Testament thing in some honestly magical way. It's amazing and we're missing these subtle things from the Old Testament. The American church has become so negatively preoccupied with the return of Christ that we've missed the eschatological beauty of his first coming. So I say all that to say that I'm nervous to teach you this stuff because I, I, I don't have as firm of a grasp on it as I would like to have, if I'm being just completely transparent with you. But here's my hope, honestly, is that you guys don't have as firm of a grasp on it as you should have either, and that maybe for some of you in this room, I'm just a half step ahead, okay? If I can just be a half step ahead in learning about this stuff, then hopefully we can move down the path in learning about this topic. There is absolutely no way that I could cover the whole thing in an hour. That is an unreasonable expectation. Uh, but I, I want to be upfront with what I know and also know what I don't know. And that's important to know what you don't know. I want us to become familiar with some of the big texts in the Old Testament as we move through this. So tonight's going to be a little bit different. If you've listened to John MacArthur much, it's one of those where I'm just going to bounce around throughout the Old Testament. We're going to sort of tape it, take it topically, if you will. But what I want you to do is I want you to follow along in your copy of the Word of God. This is why I put that in the band post, because what I think you'll be surprised at, and hopefully, hopefully this is correct, it's not even like an electronic device doesn't really do this for me. What I find awesome is I'm like, oh yeah, Matthew quotes da-da-da in the Old Testament, and I go to that specific verse. But then I just back up, and I look at what's on the pages surrounding, and I'm like, wow. Okay, hold on, hold on. Jesus is everywhere back here. They didn't just randomly pluck out a verse. This is a whole theology. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, Zephaniah, they have a cohesive message. And so as we move through, I'm going to try to go slowly enough to where we can sort of just flip to these passages. And if you see some awesome connection within there, please bring it up. I'm going to try to hit on the highlights. Did I miss something? Do I know that I missed stuff in the Old Testament? Yes. And hopefully maybe you can just elucidate if I've, if I've not made something clear. So with that said, let's begin um, on your handout. You have the prophets. And so this is, I've tried to outline it according to Peter's style as well. Uh, the prophets then, Peter has talking about the day of the Lord. And so I'm trying to categorize these Old Testament texts to make it a little bit more systematic. Let's talk about passages in the Old Testament that deal with God's destruction of the wicked. God's destruction of the wicked. So let's start back in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9 to start. Isaiah 9. What I want you to notice from Isaiah chapter 9 is, well, first off, this is the perfect text for us right now in the Advent month, right? This is our classic, for unto us a child is born, unto us a Savior is given. But I want to point out that even inside of this, which is generally a more positive passage, down in verse 4, the last line of verse 4, you have broken 
as on the day of Midian. There are miniature versions of the day of the Lord in the Old Testament that can be directed at certain groups of people. So take Midian, for example, or in Ezekiel, uh, God deals with the Ammonites. And so throughout the Old Testament, you're going to come across like the day of the Ammonites and the day of the Babylonians. And you're like, is this the day of the Lord? How's this working? There are little miniature previews of God's judgment upon a people group. The day of the Lord, though, is much broader than this, and it can be seen as a time when all of Israel's enemies are to be destroyed. Uh, turn over to Zephaniah chapter 12. Zephaniah chapter 12. Not books that you probably have visited in any recent time. Zephaniah chapter 12. Please tell me there is a Zephaniah 12. There is no Zephaniah 12. Well, that would be an issue, wouldn't it? Zechariah. Thank you. Yeah. There it is. There it is. Thank you. Zechariah. I should just spell these out when I'm doing the. Thank you. Uh, Zechariah chapter 12, verses 3 through 9. Zechariah 12, 3 through 9. Um, we start with, On that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. And, and we are starting to move through this. I'm going to strike the people with blindness, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We're going to have this strength, blah, 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 all the way down to verse 9. And this is sort of your summary statement is that it's not just directed against Midian, and it's not just directed against the Ammonites, but God, on verse 9, and on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So there was going to come a day, and this is part of Israel's deliverance, so it's a, it's a blurry topic, you know, we, we've got deliverance and destruction, but God is going to destroy the enemies of Israel. Now you can take that word Israel however you want to, I'm going to let that topic go aside just for a moment. But let's just keep it there for a moment. Those who come against Jerusalem are going to be destroyed. And I was like, great, there's a text about that. And then I you know, opened my eyes and looked at the pages that were surrounding. Uh, any of you have sort of titles in your Bible, like the editors put titles? What is, what's the title before verse 10? Him whom they have pierced. Mm -hmm. Him whom they have pierced. Where does that sound familiar from? We have this passage about Israel is going to mourn their only son. They're going to weep bitterly over him. They're going to weep over their firstborn. They're going to look upon him whom they have pierced in connection with a day of the Lord passage. Doesn't this sound familiar from our time in Romans chapter 11? What does Paul say? He's giving this idea of Israel, we're grafted in, we're part of the covenant blessings of Israel. And then he says, there's going to come a day when Israel looks upon him whom they have pierced. And many commentators take this as an eschatological promise. Like the end of this era, when the day of the Lord is approaching, Israel will turn to look at their Messiah. And this is when all Israel will be saved. Keep going. Chapter 13. What, what is Israel literally famous for in the Old Testament? They're going to be idolatrous in any way possible. Idolatry is cut off in chapter 13. 
But then we get to verse 7. Where have we heard verse 7 before? Again, uh, or rather, yes, uh, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Where have we heard that before? Jesus. He's going into this Gethsemane episode and he applies this to himself. Who's he talking with? He's talking with Peter and the disciples. Uh, I will turn my hand against the little ones and the whole land declares the Lord. Two thirds shall be cut off and perish. One third shall be left alive. What's the point? The shepherd is going to be struck. Jesus says, I'm going to be struck down. He's saying, this is being fulfilled in me right now. Then who's going to scatter? The sheep, the disciples. He's left alone. And what does Peter say? No, I'll never, I'll never, I'll die for you, Jesus. And then Jesus is like, I'm sorry, Peter, but that's just, that's just not true, buddy. You're, you're going to be scattered. Okay, that's fine. But what does verse 8 then say? There are the two-thirds that perish, and there are the one-third that are left alive. The idea being that God is going to refine Israel. He's going to take the dross off of them, as verse 9 puts it. And so Peter's scattering, forsaking the Messiah, makes him look like he's in these two-thirds that are going to perish. So doesn't Peter's abandonment of Jesus seem a little more serious now? If Peter's familiar with this Old Testament text, which I would presume he is, Peter's looking like I'm part of the two-thirds of the dross that God's going to cut off from Israel because I've left the Messiah. And of course, you know, you have this episode with Christ where everything's redeemed and you have this restoration. But wow, doesn't Peter's abandonment take on a whole new tone and a whole lot more gravity when Again, if you're taking an imminent eschatology, as Peter probably does, Jesus is dying. Wow, eschatology is happening. I abandoned the Messiah. I blew it. I blew it. God is going to remove the dross from Israel, and I'm a part of that dross. Wow, that takes a whole lot more serious tone. Jesus is then identified as Yahweh in the Old Testament, uh, 14. Uh, a day is coming for the Lord, right? Yahweh. And then we move into this passage where we talk about the Mount of Olives right here. Uh, verse 4, Messiah, God, is going to come down on the Mount of Olives. So we've moved through the cross narrative. Jesus has been resurrected. And he goes to the Mount of Olives. And he ascends up. And the angels come and say what? Don't worry, guys. Why are you looking at heaven? I mean, there's stuff to do around here. The guy who just left is going to be coming back on the same mountain that he just went up from. And what is that referring to? It's referring to the day of the Lord. The angels are identifying Jesus as Yahweh. This is the day of Yahweh in the Old Testament. And the angels are like, he's coming back from this mountain. So when you go through the gospel narrative, and I'm not even close to touching it. I want you to know that every single detail probably has some little connection, especially in Matthew, to these Old Testament texts. When Messiah comes, if you continue in this passage, on that day, the Lord is going to destroy them. The ungodly will be destroyed and the righteous will worship the Lord. <coughs> so the nations then, in summary, are promised destruction. Egypt in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Edom in Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ethiopia, Babylon, the Ammonites, Damascus, can all be said to be nations that are sitting under divine wrath. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 24 now, Isaiah chapter 24, what I want you to pick up there is that it's not just one nation, right? It's not just Midian. It's not just 
Babylon, which, by the way, go through Isaiah, Babylon takes on some pretty spiritualized tones, as in Babylon is a symbol for other spiritual realities. But that's a, I'm just going to let that... I'm just going to I'm going to set that out there and you can do whatever you want with it. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 24 uh, verse 19. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. Down to verse 21. On that day the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven, the kings of the earth on the earth. The kings are going to be destroyed. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 2, you see the same exact message. We have the day of the Lord beginning in verse 6. But look down in verse, uh, verse 10. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. Does that sound familiar at all? Hiding in rocks, hiding in the dust. Revelation chapter 6. The lamb's glory is on display and they say, they cry to the rocks, fall on us, but they can't die. Right? That's, the, that's Revelation. Picking up and bringing all these passages together. Jesus is executing the judgment of Yahweh against all the proud and lofty. Look at verse 11. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, it shall be brought low. Over in Isaiah 13 now, or Isaiah 6 through 13, Isaiah just keeps coming with these messianic texts. Here we see that God does indeed have judgment against the entire world. He's going to destroy the whole land. And yet, in the Gospels, what do we see? Wail for the day of the Lord is near. Destruction is coming. They will be dismayed. The pangs and agony will... Ang agony, agony, I did this earlier. I read that agony. Agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. Whoa, you know, we're getting to the New Testament and we have this very difficult saying by Jesus at the end of the at the end of Matthew. How do we understand the Lord's teaching on the end times? What do you think he just came up with the idea of pangs of labor on the spot? He's just like, you know, I think this is a good analogy. I'm going to use it. No, of course not. Jesus is drawing in the whole Old Testament and showing that he is everything that the hope of Isaiah was pointing to he is the promise of restoration he is also the promise of destruction um, when Jesus is dying on the cross and we see it right here for the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give the light the sun will be dark at its rising we see this in Joel as well what do the gospel writers record in Matthew again in other places as well Jesus is on the cross everything goes dark the sun does not it's noonday but it is black why did they record that? Why is that such an important detail to record? The gospel writers are trying to say all these cataclysmic signs and symbols of the end of the age are here. When Jesus is dying on the cross, this is an, this is an apocalyptic event. This is the beginning of the latter days. We are seeing the fulfillment of this in Jesus' death on the cross. Um, so we have a choice then presented to us by the narrative from the gospel writers. We can participate in one of two days of the Lord, if you want to put it that way. On one hand, the day of the Lord wrath was infinitely poured out on Jesus. How can one man take all of that wrath 
on himself because he is infinite. He is the God-man. And so you can either participate in Jesus's taking of the wrath of the day of the Lord on the cross, or you can wait till the end of the age and suffer the destruction of the ungodly. So God's wrath, this eschatological wrath, is going to be poured out. And the gospel writers are very clear to say that the cross is an eschatological event. So you can either participate in the destruction of Christ on your behalf, or you can suffer at the end of the age. Um, within many passages of these passages, there is promise for the restoration of Israel. You can look at Isaiah chapter 9. There's a king who's going to rule over the nations. There's going to be justice in the land once again. Um, we have David with justice and righteousness and uh, wonderful counselor, mighty God, of, his, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Isaiah chapter 11. There is going to come a time when the kings of this, uh, when the conditions of this world are going to be restored. You look at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6. The wolf shall lie down with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. All of these things, there are going to come a time when pre-fall conditions are back once again. You go to Isaiah chapter 25. This is... Like, I, how, does, how is this in the Old Testament? And I've just missed it all along one of these passages. God is going to swallow up death on this day, according to Isaiah. Doesn't that sound familiar? You think Paul just woke up one day and said, I'm going to write 1 Corinthians. I'm going to create a whole new thing about the day of the Lord. No, of course not. Paul is drawing off this rich Old Testament heritage to say death is going to be destroyed. Um, in verse 8, I believe, particularly here. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The reproach of his people will be taken away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. What Revelation is picking up is not in isolation. God has always promised to do away with death and to do away with the pain that we endure. This goes on into chapter 27, verse 6, where Israel is redeemed, filling the whole earth. Chapter 35, verse 5. A new deliverance from bondage occur, occurs where there's a, a ransom from exile. And so let's go, let's go to chapter 35. Chapter 35 is an important one in my opinion. Chapter 35, verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, and the lame man shall leap like a deer. Okay? And let's see. I don't think it's... I think it's later. I think this one is in chapter 42. Chapter 42 says that the servant of the Lord is given uh, the spirit of the Lord and releases captives from prison. Okay? Great. That is a spiritual truth. But there's a forerunner for the Messiah. And that forerunner is thrown into prison. Well, that doesn't seem very eschatological of you, Jesus. You're supposed to be releasing captives from prison, and now I'm thrown into prison. What's that about? So John sends to Jesus and he says, are you really the one? Like, are you actually Messiah? And what does Jesus say? <coughs> you got it, buddy. You know that I am. What does he say? No, he says, tell John that the lame walk, that the deaf hear, and the blind see. What is he saying? He's saying, I don't just claim to be. Everything that I am doing fulfills what Isaiah has been saying will happen in the day of the Lord. So you can have faith that in your situation right now, 
Doesn't look very eschatological. There's this ironic element of suffering right now, despite the latter days coming upon us. But I am Messiah. I am fulfilling the Old Testament. Um, Isaiah chapter 49. We see Israel, who is called from the womb. Oh my, this is just unbelievable. If... Caleb, if you want a passage that proves true Israel from the Old Testament, this is your go-to passage. Okay, look at this. The Lord called me from the womb. Okay, this sounds very individual. It sounds very individual. Uh, he's going to deliver the nation of Israel. Right down in uh, verse 5, he says that Israel might be gathered to him. So we have Israel, an individual, being raised up to deliver Israel. How does that work? It doesn't really work unless there is one individual who so encapsulates all of the nation in one person that he can fulfill everything that they were supposed to and then deliver the nation. This is, this is unbelievable. And the more pieces of data that you add to this puzzle, the more impossible and impossible it becomes for it to not match Christ. Like if it doesn't match Christ, it will never be matched is what my point is because there are too many conditions to meet all of them correctly. Um, and this is, I mean, this is the, I mean, this whole section, you, I, I, don't have, I don't have time, but just flip through it. It's like messianic from here on out. There is not enough time tonight to try to move through the rest of all these messianic texts. But here's where things take a really sudden, radical, sharp, wild left-hand turn is that being a part of the covenant community isn't enough to get you through the day of the Lord. Like, up until Amos, in the chronological development of the Old Testament, it's like, okay, okay, I'm a part of Israel. God's going to deliver Israel. And what does what goes down in Amos? This is shocking, especially if you are the Israelite by ethnicity. Amos 5.18, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. He, Amos is talking about how Israel has gone astray from the way of the Lord. Okay, And Amos is like, you don't understand. Okay, You don't want the day of the Lord. Because the day of the Lord isn't just coming upon everyone else. They, they shouldn't be excited about it because judgment is coming on all the unrighteous. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. You can be an Israelite, or you can be an Ammonite and an Edomite, if you are not in, in on following Yahweh, you're in deep, deep trouble. And Isaiah 7, or uh, sorry, uh, Amos 7, 4, we see that the, the Lord showed me, behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire. This is an Old Testament theme that is picked up. It's in Isaiah 66 as well. This judgment is going to be by fire. That's a lot of judgment from the Old Testament, okay? That's, I know, that's not the lightest topic I've ever talked about. But on the flip side, this is, this is what I want you to pick up. There is intense destruction of the wicked, and there is amazing uh, deliverance of his one people. There are approximately 60 uses of the day of Yahweh in the Old Testament that speak of the restoration. Are we going to cover that tonight? No. We've already covered some in Isaiah, but we cannot possibly cover them all. So I, I want to switch out of Isaiah, and I want to show you some of the relevant texts in Jeremiah. Jeremiah, again, is just incredible. It is, oh, man, it's unbelievable. It really is. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30. 
we see that Israel's land is going to be restored. Don't be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of captivity. Jacob shall return. The land is giving back, given back to them. Chapter 31, we have, we have their mourning being turned into joy. And yet, look at this mourning, verse 15 in uh, chapter 31. A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted. Matthew applies that to Herod's destruction of the innocents. And then Jesus escapes and joy is going to follow. These are all not just randomly plucked out texts in the New Testament. The New Testament writers didn't just go and you know throw a dart at the Old Testament and try to pick out a verse. There's a very intentional way in which they are picking it out. You continue on in verse 31, and then the New Covenant, uh, in chapter 31 to verse 31, and the New Covenant is established. So you go from the destruction of the innocents in Jesus' time, which this is really referring to, and to him instituting a new covenant. There is incredible continuity within these passages. Verse, um, let's go to chapter, yes, let's go to chapter 33. I think this is probably the most interesting tidbit that will stretch some of your understanding. But if you've read the book, that I, the part of the book that I wrote, this is old news, so I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Look at this down in verse uh, 21 and 22. We're talking about the covenant that God made with David. Verse 22, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured. What is that talking about? Let's pause there. What covenant is that talking about? The sands of the seashore? Abrahamic. Abrahamic. But what does he say? So will I multiply the offspring of David, my servant. Wait a second. Now we've combined two covenants. How's that supposed to work? We have the Abrahamic covenant now having to be fulfilled through a descendant of David. And this descendant of David is said to be on the throne. So it has to be the descendants of the restored King David. But then what does it say? And the Levitical priests who minister to me. Now we've got the priesthood in here. And how's that supposed to work? You know, Saul got in trouble for trying to offer sacrifices when he was king. So how's this supposed to work? And Jeremiah is giving us this funneling picture where all of the Old Testament covenants come together in one person. Jesus is the Davidic king. Jesus receives the blessings to the nations, promises that were made to Abraham. Jesus receives the Levitical priesthood. He is the high priest, and we get to be priests with him. Uh, yes, so let's go on to, um, let's go on, because the salvation is not restricted uh, to the people of Israel. And that's what's exciting. In the Old Testament, there are hints that this is going to extend to other nations. Isaiah chapter 2, 2 through 4, and that one I have handed out. So I know we're on a strand here. But. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Je God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways. For that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He, he shall judge between the nations, and he shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. That is not Isaiah 2, is it? Isaiah 2. Yeah. Is it really? Yeah. Wow. I missed, an, I missed an Old Testament biblical connection. 
just wait on that. That's coming back soon. That's awesome. Okay, keep reading. That's fantastic. And the spirits and the pruning hooks, nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they turn, learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Whenever the latter days are, the nations are going to come streaming to the Lord. That's what I was taking out of that text, and apparently I just got so excited and left the rest of it behind. Isaiah 11.10. Isaiah 11.10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Jesus is bringing all peoples to himself. Now, when Paul in Romans is starting to talk about the, or actually uh, <coughs> Galatians and literally everywhere, but when he's starting to talk about grafting in to the covenants, doesn't it start to make a little bit more sense right now? Um, you have the nations, they're grafted in to the covenants of Israel. Like, you were a Gentile, but now you get to participate in everything that the Old Testament talked about for deliverance at this day, because Jesus is true Israel, and you can be connected to the true vine. It's so pretty. I mean, it's just so pretty, because then you go full circle, and the Gentiles are now here, so that God can fulfill these things to Israel. He says, you guys, you Gentiles, are now designed to make Israel jealous. And then in the end, all Israel will be saved and all of this will be completed because Israel's going to be saved, they're going to get all their promises, plus all the nations will have come to Jesus. And it's just like, wow. I mean, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is just brilliant. I mean, that is unbelievably good theology. Um, this is all great. I, I get it. It's very general, I suppose, but hopefully I can give you just a little bit more of specific practical application. Um, I know that many of you in this room have been affected by sickness of some sort, a cancer, dementia, heart attacks, you know, all the, all the terrible diseases that we face. Um, may, maybe you were born in some way that has been impacted by the fall. Isaiah promises us that when the day of the Lord comes and the w world is made whole again, that will no longer be here. Uh, there's going to be the restoration of the earth. Man, so many things are, so many wars in history have been fought over resources, if you really boil it down. And guess what? All of the resources are going to be plentiful in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, and then finally, there is a land of milk and honey, which is described as the new creation. It's not just, it's not just Canaan. That was a type. That's a small little portion of a much bigger reality that we are going to get to enjoy in the next age. Now, let's look at Micah 4, 4 through 7, that has the exact same content. Micah 4, 4 through 7. This is awesome. There but can they be. shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken, for all the people walk. In, for all the peoples walk, each in the name of his God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away, and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant, and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion, in Mount Zion and from this time forth and forevermore. As we're going to briefly cover later, this is in the context of the latter days, and we'll, we'll draw out the inaugurated eschatology of Christ. But... In these latter days, there are nations streaming to the house of the Lord. Um, welcome to the house of the Lord, by the way. This is it. This is the church. And that's uh, in the New Testament when Paul refers to the temple of God. I think, like, for sure, out of the ten 
or 11 times that he uses it, it's always in reference to the church, by the way. So if you're looking for a temple, I found one for you. Uh, it says that every man sits under his vine and fig tree. And it says that God is gathering his remnant of broken people. We are the latter-day remnant, okay? We, you and I, are this latter-day remnant. We are the fulfillment of this people. And we live in an overlap of the ages, right? We have some of the blessings because Christ has come, and yet Christ has not yet finished it. He still has to come back. And so we're in this overlap of the ages. But you are little inbreakings of the new creation, okay? When Paul says, you are a new creation, he's not just like, wow, you're a, you're a brand new dude. I hope you like that. He's saying, you're, after Jesus, of course, the first of what is going to be an entirely new heavens and new earth. You, are, you don't belong to this age anymore. You belong to an entirely different era. You belong to the new heavens and the new earth. You're just a pilgrim here on earth. So why don't you act like you belong to the new heavens and the new earth? Um, we are the fulfillment. We are receiving these promises. And so what I want to encourage you in here is put down your weapons. It is so natural to be vengeful. It's natural to be bitter. It's natural to be unforgiving. It's natural to want to cut off fellowship with somebody because you were hurt. Um, they hurt me, so I don't want to have fellowship with them anymore. But guys, when you, when you really start to grasp the potential imminence of Jesus' is coming, like the New Testament authors lived in the light of the fact that Jesus could come at any time, then we just really don't have time for this crap. You know what I mean? We really don't have time to be vengeful and bitter and disenchanted and cutting off fellowship with people because of something dumb. Because Jesus fulfilled everything that he needed to fulfill at the first coming in order to come back at any time. He could come back at any time. So live in a way that is ready for that. You guys, you all, myself included, are the lame of this world. The Bible literally calls you lame, right? That is the point of this text is that the people that God is drawing to himself are lame individuals. And, you know, we attract some very specific personalities here. That's all I'll say. You know, that's, there are some fun interactions and ways personalities interact. We're a hodgepodge, misfit group of people and that's exactly how God wanted it to be he's going to take the weirdos of this world and make a strong nation out of them that's really really encouraging I don't expect for everyone in this room to be best friends but I want to challenge you guys that it isn't enough to not have actions of bitterness towards those you dislike it's not enough to not slander someone you must work to actively develop feelings of goodwill and charitability to those who would naturally be your enemy, even within the household of God. It's not just like you don't use your sword anymore. It's not like you don't use your spear. You actively beat it into a plowshare, right? It's, you don't go to war with your brothers and sisters anymore. That's away from the past. Now what you do is you grow, you plant, you harvest, and develop good relationships with other people. If you guys want this group to be amazing and exceptional and wonderful, you guys individually have to be amazing and wonderful and exceptional, and that's very, very difficult to do. In a group of people that is this close and does, does so much stuff together, there's gonna be somebody that does something stupid and people make mistakes, people hurt other people. But it is not enough to not be mean. 
Okay, that's that's where we live on this level. It's like, don't don't worry, I haven't been mean to them. I'm going to challenge you and say that you need to. It's not an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. It is love your enemy. Have love and peace towards people that have hurt you. Um, how many times have I seen this happen where it's like somebody's name is brought up and somebody else just has that like physical re recourse where it's like they just sort of curl against them. It's like, ew, that person? Really? That person? Um, we got to stop that. You know, I'm not being mean to them. I'm not slandering them. Okay, but you're clearly not loving them either, right? That's not loving to say, ew, gross. Uh, love them so much and care for their soul so deeply that your emotions and affections cannot help but follow suit. Love them until your affections follow suit. They don't deserve grace upon grace upon grace. But let, let me give you this analogy that I thought of. Let's say that my name is brought up in the courtroom of heaven. And Jesus and God the Father are just having a little conversation about me. But when, when my name gets brought up, Jesus goes, Ew, Sam? And God the Father's like, what, what's up with that? And he was like, no, 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 don't, don't worry. Don't worry. I love him. So I did die for him, yeah, but, but Sam's really hurt me a few times since. So don't worry. I love Sam. I just don't like him. <laughs> I'll do things for Sam if he needs me to, but I'll never really give myself to him ever again. I'll never really open up to him again. Can you guys imagine how bad that would be if Christ acted that way towards us? Like, yeah, I'll love him. I'll actionably do stuff for him if he just prays to me, but... I'm never really going to give of myself to him again. I'm never going to open up my treasures of wisdom and knowledge to Sam again because I just, you know, he's, he's hurt me one too many times. But instead, this is what's magnificent, is that Jesus delights in us. Jesus delights in us, and we hurt him again and again. And unlike us, he knows that we're going to hurt him again. That's what's incredible. Like, imagine if you had to interact with people that you knew exactly how they were going to offend you and exactly how badly they were going to hurt you, and you went ahead with it anyways and loved them fully. And when we come seeking a restored relationship, he brings us right back into a fully restored relationship. And so I encourage you, be more like Christ in your relationships. And please, don't use human word games to pretend that you love someone when you harbor bitterness towards them in your heart. That's fake. It's, I, I think it's lying, right? To say, you know, I, I love them, I just don't like them half the time. Okay? Off my soapbox, back to Second Peter. The false teacher's claim then is that Jesus hasn't accomplished what the Messiah should accomplish, right? You say that the day of the Lord's going to come. But I don't see any of this promised stuff from the Old Testament, so I don't think Jesus is Messiah. Okay, what do you do with that? Um, if, it, if he's not fulfilling it, then he's not Messiah. What is Peter's answer? Peter gives an answer. He gives a very simple answer that we'll unpack next week. Why the wait? Why is Jesus waiting? Here's the kindness. Here's the patience of God. God isn't just, you know, Messiah comes looking to destroy them as soon as possible. What is he doing? He is giving time for people to repent. That's a magnificent kindness of God. So God is going to destroy the wicked with fire. Look over in Malachi chapter 4. Um, but he is going to deliver 
the righteous in that day. Malachi chapter 4 summarizes this as best as possible. Let's just, um, I'm going to go ahead and skip over that reading. I'll, I'll just read it myself. Um, but for you who fear my name, uh, actually, behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. Um, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing on its wings. You're going to go out leaping from the stall, and you're going to tread down the wicked. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes I gave him at Horeb. Before the day of the Lord comes, Elijah the prophet is going to be there. I will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And then, boom, we pop on the scene. So let's take a real brief look at Christ and his apostles in, second, um, in, in the Gospels. In Second Peter, we see that Jesus gives this idea of a commandment. Um, to believe in the gospel and all the ways that come with that, I would suppose. But the gospel of Jesus is an eschatological message. Judgment is going to be here soon. Escape from that judgment. That's the point of the gospel, if you want to really boil it down. Judgment is coming soon. God will judge the wicked. Let Christ take that punishment for you. So Matthew chapter 11. Go to Matthew chapter 11 real briefly. I know we're up against the clock here. Matthew chapter 11. John is imprisoned, and Jesus tells him of messianic conditions. This is precisely the text that we looked at earlier. John is preaching that the kingdom of God has come, and Jesus is going to turn around in uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those who are born, um, there's no greater than John the Baptist. Um, verse 13, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Jesus is saying, John was the Elijah, I'm the Messiah, the day of the Lord is imminent. But does the New Testament as a whole see the latter days as something yet future, or do they begin with Jesus' first advent? If you were here for Beale's lecture, you know what direction I'm going to take this, but the New Testament clearly speaks that we are in the latter days. The last day then, the last day, is synonymous with the day of Christ's return, which we will get to momentarily. But what about the latter days that the Old Testament speaks of? Let's start in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. Somebody has that one. Let's, uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made you. Yeah. Through whom also he made you. So when it says the last days, it's not just like, oh, by the way, in the past like decade, you know, Jesus came and died on the cross. What it's saying is these are the last days. Jesus died on the cross. It kicked off the eschatological party, if you will. And Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 1, which we're going to skip over for time. Uh, James chapter 5, James is chiding his congregation. Why? Because they're laying up treasures here in these last days. Now this is the ultimate application point, I suppose. Why focus on possessions in the last days when they're just going to burn like hay and stubble anyways? Lay up treasures in a place that will continue forever. But one of the most ironic portions of the overlap of the ages is that though the kingdom has begun, we are yet in an area, era of tribulation. Daniel seems to have foreseen this, and it's certainly a theme that is picked up on in the New Testament, is that there is suffering and there is deception before the kingdom comes in complete fullness. The latter days, having false teachers, is actually taken as a proof 
that we are in the latter days for the New Testament authors. 1 Timothy 4.1 and 1 John 2.18. 1 Timothy, um, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And then 1 John 2.18. Children, this is the last hour, and as you've heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. What does then the last day itself, or the day of the Lord, using that term specifically, look like within the context of the New Testament? Well, we see a little shift. Um, it's not just called the day of the Lord. In uh, Philippians 1.10, Philippians 2.16, Paul starts referring to it as the day of the Lord Jesus Christ and as the day of the Lord Jesus. Sometimes we see the day of the Lord language retained and carried through the New Testament. Um, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we have applications on the day of the Lord. In 1 Thessalonians 4, it speaks of the day of the Lord as a time when the dead are raised to life and rapture is happening, not in the dispensational sense, by the way, but it is talking about the rapture. Um, and Paul continues on in 2 Thessalonians uh, 1, 5 through 12. Notice the themes here in uh, 2 Thessalonians 1. There is suffering in the kingdom, yet God is going to deliver us and destroy the wicked. Paul continues on in chapter 2 to say, don't worry. The day of the Lord hasn't come yet. People are writing false letters to you. You don't need to worry. You didn't, in the dispensational sense, you didn't miss the rapture. You know, you're, you're okay. There are still things that have to happen before the day of the Lord. And so Paul picks this up, but he modifies it because he sees the day of the Lord as the day of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. So what is the practical application? And this is, this is where we'll try to land the plane for this evening. Um, go over to, um, if, if you look in 2 Thessalonians uh, 2, 13 through 16, we have three very distinct things that Paul says that we should do. First, we should be thankful to God for choosing to save us. That is our heart's reaction, or what it should be. God chose to save you from this destruction, so be thankful that he did. Um, we should delight in God's kindness toward us. Second, we must stand firm in the gospel. That's the application point, right? If you want to make it through fiery judgment, then you have to remain persevering in your faith. This is the faith that Jesus has called us to, stand firm in that faith. And then third, do good works um, and share good words with people, right? You want to live like a new creation, or you want to be a new creation, act like it, speak like it. So I hope, for, I hope that you see in these passages that eschatology is far from impractical for Paul. It drives him in everything that he does. For personal holiness, Paul sees this as these inbreakings. When it comes to missions and evangelism, Paul's preaching the gospel to the whole world so that it can be prepared for the return of Jesus. For interpersonal relations, Paul wants us to continue to live in a way that builds up the eschatological temple of God. He's like, why would you tear down other believers? Don't you know that you're tearing down God's eschatological temple? That gives a whole new level of seriousness to insulting somebody and tearing somebody down when you're like, why am I trying to destroy God's temple? Right? Work with God to build the temple. That's Paul's case in Romans. So, while I confess that the summary lacks many, many things, our life should be apocalyptic. 
Okay, I want your lives to be apocalyptic. Now, when I say that, I don't mean go out and buy five more guns and install a $10,000 nuclear fallout shelter, which they do make ones that can be installed under your garage if you're interested. Um, but that's not what I mean when I say live in an apocalyptic way. What I mean when I say to live apocalyptically is Philippians 1, 6 through 11. Jesus is calling us to live lives of love until he appears. You shouldn't prepare for the apocalypse in the sense of trying to get through the apocalypse. You should prepare for the apocalypse in knowing that you're going to get through it and making use of all the time that you have until the day of Jesus Christ arrives. Philippians 1, 6 through 11. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partake partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that, you, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So imagine that you're Paul you are trained to a professional level in the Old Testament. And Jesus presents himself on the Damascus road and it all comes together. You see how Jesus Christ is the perfect culmination of everything that Paul has learned his whole life. And so, yes, we can get bogged down in this study because of its sheer volume, right? And it's complexity to some degree, but there are just so many data points that it's like almost exhausting to try to study it, to feel like you have a grasp on it. But I promise you that this can be a very emotionally relevant topic. Um, go to 2 Timothy, um, and this is, the last, I, this is the last place that I'm going to have you flip, as far as I know, unless, unless I don't. Um, st let's start in chapter 1, verse 12. This tells you that it's eschatological, which is why I suffer as I do. For I am not ashamed, for I know that what I have, or no, I know whom I have believed, to be more specific, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul has been entrusted with this eschatological message of hope, the gospel, but Paul's at the end of his life, and Jesus hasn't come back. And he trusts that Jesus is able to make sure that this message doesn't get lost. Jesus can protect the message that Paul was given as it gets passed on, and he's Passing it on to um, Timothy, verse 14, guard the good deposit entrusted in you. And vicariously, Timothy's now gone, and the next person's now gone, and the person after that's gone, and it trickles all the way down to us. Jesus has pre preserved the true gospel all the way until our very day. Particularly for uh, those who want to be leaders within the church. Be look at the beginning of chapter 3, but understand this. That in the last days, there's going to come times of difficulty. right? If you want to lead in the church, it's going to be hard because that's the time period that we're living in. I, he <laughs> says, I can guarantee you that all who try to live a godly life will suffer persecution. And that's especially true in Paul's day. But what's the answer? Look to chapter 4, verse 1. Continue to preach. Continue to be ready, in season, out of season. Rebuke, reprove, exhort with complete patience. Teach, because the time's coming when they don't endure it. But keep doing what you should be doing. Keep fighting, 
Keep sharing the gospel. But here's really what I want to look at. Look down in verse 9. Do your best to come to me. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Paul is abandoned. He was abandoned by team members. People he thought were going to make it to the end. Demas. But look, Demas abandoned him. Okay, sure, certainly Paul's friends are there then at least, right? No, Paul doesn't even have any friends. His friends are away on ministry. And now Paul is left alone. If you go back to chapter 1, it says that all of Asia has deserted Paul. Whoa, literally, his, it, looks like, it looks like his entire ministry is falling apart. Um, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and the Gentiles might hear it. Jesus stood by him. Jesus strengthened him. Jesus helped him to proclaim the gospel. And the Lord rescued him from evil, evil deeds that he might do. I know that there are people in this room who are hurting. There are some who mourn their lackluster sharing of the gospel. There are those who are habitually battling evil deeds. You just feel like you're stuck in a pattern of sin. And it's like, oh my goodness, we're back here again and again. And there are so many just on a continual basis that feel alone and feel abandoned. There are many heavy hearts in this room. And I want you guys to know that, I mean, I care about you guys. I feel the weight of all of those heavy things. We were just talking about this in my prayer group. It is, it is such a weight. Um, even Paul's ministry looked like a failure. And if that's what you really dedicate your life to, if you say, I want to serve the Lord Jesus with everything that I've got, and then you get to the end of your life and your ministry looks like a failure, then you're going to feel like a big failure. Cause it's like, I didn't even focus on the world and I still failed. Everything is falling apart on Paul. Everything. He's alone. He's hurting. You guys are hurting. You may feel abandoned. You may feel like you're struggling with sin. And yet listen to Paul, verses 6 through 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, with the, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. This is not Paul being depressed. This is not Paul being downtrodden. No, this is Paul celebrating. Paul is saying, my death is at hand. I've done everything that Jesus wanted me to do. I have stayed with Jesus to the very end of my life. And I have persevered because I didn't quit on that course. And now I get to go on and I get to spend eternity with Jesus. And I get to receive my crown of righteousness. But that's not just for Paul, beloved. That's for you too. Okay, that's for you too. And Paul's not unique here. Paul is a great example of it. But again, it's you have no idea how much my heart hurts for you guys when you go through these things and the sins that I hear about that you guys are struggling with and genuinely fighting against. Those things are heavy for me and I, I feel that and it's hard to be alone. It's hard to be abandoned and it's hard to feel like 
I don't even know what I'm good at. How am I supposed to know how I'm supposed to minister to Jesus? Right? That's so frustrating. You're like, I want to try. I don't even know where to try. I don't even know where to start. Okay, that's frustrating. It's frustrating. Okay, I get that. But Jesus is is there with you. And what I know, I what I know is that the enemy will try to use loneliness and guilt and failure to get you to try to do one thing, and that is to quit. And that is one thing that Paul refused to do. I'm sure that Paul had setbacks. All of Asia deserting you is a setback. If my ministry fell apart to where all of Turkey, no one loved me, and I had spent all of my life ministering to Turkey, I would feel pretty lame. And yet here is uh, is, Jesus through Paul, really. But here is Paul celebrating because he knows that he has done what Paul is supposed to do, and he stayed (laughs) with it. The enemy does not want you to persevere. He will use any one of those things to get you to quit. On Jesus, He will do whatever he can to get you to leave the faith, to get you to leave the gospel behind. And so, in a nutshell, fight to the death. Fight to the, to the death. And that might mean death comes sooner. It might mean you live to be a ripe old age. But fight until you die. There's no other option. Either you're with Christ until the end or you leave him. And... I want you guys to run that race. Don't let anything drag you away from Jesus. Any of these things, abandonment, loneliness, failure, appearance of failure, run and run and run. And I hate running, right? I hate running in the physical sense, but you got to keep running. It's going to hurt. You're going to get the side ache. You're going to feel like you're going to throw up, but keep running in holiness and steadfastness. Love the appearing of Jesus and you'll receive the same crown that Paul did. I mean, when you think of the day of the Lord and you see all of the majestic imagery in the prophets about a mountain being split and rivers flowing through and you see the magnificent weight of Christ coming back on the clouds of glory and you think, you know, I'm not even worthy to get a crown. That's true, but I will get to be with Paul and every other believer who has ever lived and ever gone through these same struggles and I'll get to have my crown with them too. And we'll get to enjoy Jesus for all of eternity. And all of these problems will be wiped away. That is That trumps and minimizes everything that you're going through right now. So despite any what anyone might tell you, Jesus is coming again. The false teachers of Peter's day are going to find that out. The prophets declared it in these wonderful predictions. Jesus and the apostles speak of the commandment of the Lord Jesus, which is to participate in Christ and to love him and to love his appearing. Place your faith in Christ to get you through that day because, beloved, there is only one thing strong enough in the entire universe to withstand the wrath of Almighty God, and that is the love of Almighty God. There's no one... It's not that God's pitting him against himself. He is shielding you underneath his wings to use the Old Testament imagery. So you cannot do it on your own. Turn to Christ to save you from the day of wrath. For the wicked, destruction awaits. But for the righteous, God through Jesus can deliver you to golden shores of the kingdom where you'll receive that crown of righteousness. And Perhaps the old Fasanto saying is right. You won't even feel worthy enough and you'll cast it back at Jesus' feet. We'll see what we do with that crown. So That's a lot.
a lot. There's a lot in the Old Testament. I don't think we really even scratched the surface on the New Testament. I tried. I did my very best. But I hope you see, and this is why I wanted to finish here, the God-exalting, loving-to-neighbor applications. You should be frustrated with yourself for not grasping the beauty more. Because when you do, your view of God will be higher and your love for other people is going to go through the roof. So, anyone willing to pray? Anyone willing to pray for us here this evening? I've done a lot of talking. Okay. All right. Thank you. Lord God. Lord. You are. You are before us. You are beside us. You are within us. Help us thrive. and we may not survive in a physical sense but we will thrive in an eternal sense no matter what happens in the end we will be with you help us to live that in our lives day by day <clears throat> understanding that as a true truth in the however menial material mundane things that come with everyday life sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world to come, living as new creations because we are no longer what the old was because you have changed us. You have already begun the work that is to be fulfilled in the end. As the song says, the world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind us, Lord, the cross before us. Help us run. We are over time. I appreciate your grace in that and your continue to your continued attention. You guys always do such a great job bringing your A game. Um, let me let me present a quick choice. We can either devolve into stupidity right now, and I, by right now I mean I listen to these podcasts to trim the audio, and I say we're done. Stupidity ensues immediately. There's no slow to that, but. Um, I had I had considered just using a recording, not live music, but um, singing. Is he worthy? Oh, yes. <laughs> Do you guys want to? If not, that is totally fine. Yeah. Banger. Okay. Any against? Strongly. Okay. Very good. Um, Lexi, can you grab those two right there? The speakers. Huh? Can we split through those?
audio quality. Um, one of the speakers is out up here right now. It's the same sauce as me. Is anyone able to break the seal of the 